Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. The results are now in. I don't think there is anything Donald Trump can do about it. Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. Helen Thompson and I are going to try and think about what that means. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Talking Politics, in partnership with the London Review of Books. Helen, I was reflecting that our um, tagline for this podcast when we started it four years ago was Corbyn, exclamation mark, Trump, exclamation mark, Brexit, exclamation mark, and it is definitely out of date now. We haven't even talked about this in and we probably should talk about it sometime. Jeremy Corbyn has been suspended from the Labour Party. Donald Trump soon is no longer going to be president of the United States and Brexit, which we have talked about. Some of the heat, strangely, has gone out of that, even though the most important decisions are still to be made. So if we think about the Biden years that are coming, in a sense, the Biden years have started today. He's convening his COVID task force, what the tagline should be. And we did an episode talking about energy a couple of weeks ago. And the headline of that was, I think, uh, China climate COVID. Do you think that would do as a tagline for the Biden years? Are those the big challenges as you see them? Yeah, I think that they essentially are. And they're obviously pretty related to each other too. I think that in the first instance, that the Biden presidency is going to be about the COVID crisis. And that is true both of it as a, as a health crisis and as um as an economic crisis as well, and whatever domestic political ambitions that, that he has more long term are, are going in the first instance to have to be subordinated to that. But at the same time, I think it's pretty clear that this already is a pretty big geopolitical moment of change, and that whilst it looked like I would say if we'd been looking at this in sort of March April that. Biden had moved himself into being a, perhaps April, May, being as critical as anybody about the the old US-China relationship, not a position, it must be said, that he'd adopted at the beginning of the year. I think that we've now moved to a position where there is more of a possibility that we're going to see a a significant change. I don't think it can be a, a restoration of the way that things were before Trump embarked upon the trade war with China. But I think it's it's clearly the case that in China, that they perceive that this is something that's different from their point of view. And if it's the case, which Biden seems to be committing himself to, that climate is really going to be a very, very high priority for this administration, then that has to have consequences for what kind of policy he can pursue towards China. On COVID, luck plays a part, inevitably, good luck and bad luck. He might get lucky, so he won't be president until January. And I was thinking, you know, lots of people have been making 
FDR comparisons, one of the things that FDR did was that during the transition, which was longer in 32, 33, it was five months, he really went out of his way to do nothing because he didn't want to co-own anything that happened in those five months. He was silent, essentially, as the American economy went down the drain. Biden is not taking that path any more than Obama did during his transition. Biden is already saying he co-owns it, for better or for worse. But it is at least possible that come the early months of the Biden presidency, there will be a vaccine the worst of the virus will be passed. It will become more manageable and people will associate it with his watch. I mean, it's it's got to be possible that the timing actually on that for him is quite good. Climate is obviously such a completely different challenge because it's much, much more long-term. I would also, I mean, we've talked about this, of course, a lot. I didn't include it because I can't make it alliterative. I can't think of a word that begins with C that would work for this. But Technology, the role of the big technology companies, Silicon Valley, and its influence on American political, social, economic, cultural life, that must be the fourth big challenge for a Biden presidency. It's not it's not front and center today, but I cannot think over the next four years that there won't be aspects of the relationship between the federal government and the power of technology companies that won't become really acute. Yeah, I think that this question of big tech and American politics has been made even more complicated, actually, than, than it has been for the last four years or even perhaps preceding that. On the one hand, there's going to be considerable division probably within the Biden administration about how to deal with big tech, not least because Kamala Harris has, has been somebody who over the years has been quite big tech friendly, some of her biggest donors as a Democratic candidate, not just in her run for the Democratic nomination, came from Silicon Valley. And Biden has made a set of different noises on this issue. But I can see that if there's going to be a struggle for whose agenda is really going to dominate this presidency, that the issue of big tech really is going to be one of them. I think the other thing that's going to happen is, is just like last time, the role of big tech in the election is going to play its part, or perceptions, I should say, of the role of big tech in the election is going to play its part in undermining losers' consent. And that's what we saw you know, last time, the deep criticisms made of Facebook in particular. I think that the, the Republican voters who are unhappy about the election and the way it proceeded are, are going to direct some of their anger at the issues of the way in which the allegations about Hunter Biden's laptop were handled um, by Facebook and Twitter. So I think we're going to see a lot of political conflict, actually, more more even than we've seen in the past four years over the, the relationship between big tech and democratic politics. And it's not going to be one story either. It's going to be multiple stories playing out. Yeah, and there's a kind of irony here because the, the current focus, Trump's current focus is on old tech, the oldest tech of all in this sense, mail-in ballots and sort of the role of the postal service and other things. Um, but I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I cannot see that has anywhere to go and that, had, that that could have a really a lasting legacy. Whereas even now, when you look at Trump's Twitter feed, um, his attempt to question the result, and every single one of them, every single tweet is either not there or it's tagged as being 
unreliable, not to be trusted in some way. And just the kind of look of that, it, it's almost certainly, I think, going to have a, a longer lasting impact on the fight over mail-in votes. When we talked about this before, when we tried to think about this election in historical context, one of the questions is whether it could be a realignment election. And in one sense, it's clearly not in that, unlike some of those elections, FDR, Reagan, others, where it broke decisively in favour of one party and one candidate, often quite late in the, in Reagan's case, late in the election campaign. This one is too close for that. I mean, the popular vote is not that close, but the Electoral College, you know, one of the things about the Electoral College is actually it conceals how close it is, just as last time Biden will win by quite a few Electoral College votes. But um, in vote terms in the key states, we're talking almost certainly less than 100,000 people in total. So it's not that kind of realignment. It looks to me like the sort of election where both parties were able to turn out their vote because essentially they both had the energy of oppositional campaigns. I mean, Trump did turn out his vote because his voters wanted to oppose something. And the thought that Trump wouldn't be able to do it from the White House, that he couldn't, as the president, he couldn't recapture that energy. Well, he did. It's just that this time, the Democratic Party had the same opportunity, unlike last time, to channel oppositional energy. So it feels more like opposition versus opposition, as opposed to a kind of shift to a new order. And yet clearly things have been happening. So something that you and I haven't discussed, but you know, has been much commented on, and I'd like to get your take on this, as a sort of symbolic aspect of this election and the possibility of a realignment, the fact that Florida, still a swing state, but it moved more than most people anticipated into the Republican column, and yet on the same ballot, people voted to increase the minimum wage. And in California, which is and will always be till the end of time, it feels like a democratic state, people voted down ballot to resist the possibility of the unionization effectively of Lyft and Uber workers. Essentially, the people voted as Uber users rather than as Uber drivers. And and that is at least suggestive of a kind of shift that the Republican Party is more in tune with certain workers' values. And the Democratic Party is more aligned with consumers. Is that is that happening here? I think that there's there's something to that. I mean, I think that if you were looking at the problems that the, the Republican Party has faced, essentially since the end of the George Bush senior era, so the time when it, it can no longer even think about winning like landslide victories like it did under Reagan and under Nixon, you'd say that one of the problems that the party faced was that it basically, in economic terms, became absolutely preoccupied with the supposed issues facing you know, like wealthy Americans around taxes. And it had a, a deregulation agenda that went with that as well. But in terms of appealing to non-wealthy Americans, that what was being offered to these voters was primarily cultural. And that I think what you can see in terms of Trump's, in the first instance, hijacking of the Republican Party for you know, his cause was that he has opened up the possibility for the Republican Party of trying to have a cross-racial, more working-class vote to it. Now, we're still talking about relatively small numbers in the big scheme of things when it, when we look at minority votes for the Republican Party, but 
you can see that there is a, a possibility of a, of a broader um, Republican coalition. Now, that's going to appall certain people in the party who, are, who I think were hoping that you could be rid of Trump and you would go back, you could go back to something like the old Republican Party. But I think that there is Trump is going to have had a, a lasting effect in that respect on the Republican Party. It's not going to be easy for them to go back to being the party of simply tax cuts for the rich, deregulation and cultural conservative issues like abortion. I think that the, the Democrats are in a in a more complicated position because on the one hand, you can see that they have become a more, let's say, middle class party, consumer interests to the fore, but at the same time that there has been a shift to the left within the, the Democratic Party over the last four years that has been interested in constructing the same kind of multiracial, multiethnic, working class coalition that some people on the Trump side of the Republican Party might want to now think that they've got a a chance to consolidate. The difference for the Democrats is is obviously that they ended up with a candidate who was trying to restore the old order. And whilst I think it's reasonable to say that Biden was able to do better with certain groups of working class voters, white working class voters with whom Hillary Clinton didn't do particularly well at all, it's not clear that he's really been able to change the basic composition of the the Democratic coalition. He's just turned it out at an extremely high rate. The the state that looks most interesting now, even more than when we last spoke and when we spoke with Gary, is Georgia. I mean, Georgia is the one where there seems to have been the biggest shift. And this does, I think, fit into a more familiar pattern, which is the shift has come because of a really concerted effort on the part of Democrats following Stacey Abrams' defeat for the governorship to not just turn out votes, but get people who are entitled to vote, their entitlement confirmed, get people registered, push back really hard against the tactics of the Republican Party that made it harder for people to vote, and that it's possible that that did make a decisive difference. And then you know, the stakes are now really high in Georgia for the Senate runoff elections. And who knows what's going to happen over the next couple of months during the transition? Who knows what Trump is going to do? Who knows what kind of trouble he might cause? He might not actually cause that much because he might not be able to. And I want to touch on the end about Trump again and what he means for democracy. But that fight now looks really intense and could be quite ugly as well in Georgia, given what really is at stake actually for the Republican Party as well as for the Democratic Party on these questions of not just turnout, but actually voter registration. I mean, I think it really depends in that those two Senate runoffs, who manages to continue to channel this oppositional energy. Um, I mean, that seems so crucial in this form of politics. So this isn't a realignment, but Georgia does seem to have kind of given a glimpse of another possible future, which looks good, actually, for the Democrats in some respects, those kinds of states. If I was a Republican, I would be worried, I think, by what Georgia suggests. I mean, I think that it's... um... It's a little bit difficult to tell what's gone on in Georgia. Clearly, that there was a big pushback against voter suppression tactics in Georgia, as you say. I think it's also clear that there is also demographic change in Georgia around Atlanta and the suburbs, and that you know if there's a, a geographical place in a broader sense, you know, like where Trump lost voters, it was in big city suburbs, and that these were the at least some of the Republican voters who were willing to tolerate him last time, just about who this time said enough is enough. Now, what that means then in terms of the Senate runoff races, I think I think it's difficult to tell. Are they still going to want to say, look, the Republican Party needs to do more 
to get rid of its Trump-like element? Or are they going to say now that, as far as they're concerned, that the, the biggest risk is the Democrats having control over all three branches of government? I mean, by that, you know, the presidency, the, the House of Representatives and the, the Senate. Where I certainly agree with you is, is that what these look, Senate runoff elections look like they're going to be about is in good part, you know, like mobilising opposition um, energy. On the one hand, you'd think that that would favour the Republicans. And obviously, historically, the Republicans have been stronger, or at least since the 60s in Georgia than the, the Democrats. But there's no doubt that action on the ground has made a difference to what goes on in Georgia elections. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I just want to finish and take a bit of time, not too much time, just to reflect on the, I suppose, what you might think. So we have our tagline, but we've also kind of had a theme that, and we're certainly not alone in this, that we've touched on over the Trump years. And, and perhaps I in particular have been preoccupied with this because I've written about it. I wrote a book called How Democracy Ends, a title that I came to regret because it got lumped together with all the other books during the Trump years that seemed to imply that Trump was how democracy ends. And actually, my book began by saying the Trump years is not how democracy ends. I think democracy can survive Trump. It's dangerous because Trump was, I think, was and remains a dangerous individual. And if you make dangerous people president of the United States, you can't be sure what's going to happen at the end. But I think what happened in this election, even the conversation that we've just had, I mean, we've just been talking about American democratic politics, not as though something really outlandish and extreme happened over the last four years, but as though something that, that fits a recognisable historical pattern, leaving aside all of the sort of rhetorical trauma and drama of living with Trump in the White House. It's it's relatively familiar. And I, you know, I, I feel increasingly over the last few days that quite a lot of the Trump is how democracy ends story clearly just didn't add up. And part of the reason I feel that is too many people who were really exercised by the thought that Trump was breaching democratic norms, left, right and centre, and that once these norms are breached, they can't be restored and so on, are now too easily thinking that Biden having won is some kind of restoration. I don't see how those two things can be true. I don't see how American democracy can have been so vulnerable over the last four years, and yet can be so easily restored just by an election. And I want to sort of reiterate what I think is the the bigger story here, which is the threats to democracy, COVID, climate, China. They don't fit electoral cycles. And the last four years, though they've had some really hairy moments in them, and it's been quite, you know, we, and I'm not claiming that we haven't been drawn into that whole rhetorical drama, but it really does feel just because it didn't take much to make clear, I think, that some of the absolutely basic norms couldn't and weren't breached by Trump's rhetoric to re-establish a sense that democracy faces huge, American democracy in particular, huge medium long-term challenges. And the last four years, too much energy has gone into the short-term risks, I think. I, I continue to think. 
And I think that even more strongly today than I did last week. Yeah, I mean, I basically agree with you, as you know. But I think that what I would say is is that Trump was um, a trauma for the ideal of democracy for many, many Americans because that he didn't talk about democracy itself or indeed the American Republic in remotely idealistic terms. Some sense he told some truths about it. They were particularly, I think, when he was running for the Republican nomination, they were painful truths in part about how oligarchic American politics had become now there obviously was a certain level of absurdity to that given who he is himself in relation to those oligarchic tendencies but it didn't change the fact he was blurting out inconvenient truths about it early on anyway and I think though that we shouldn't underestimate why so many Americans found the fact that he wouldn't honour in some sense what the presidency was supposed to mean in ideal democratic terms why they found that so deeply, deeply painful. I think that the danger of the Trump was smashing all norms and was this singular violation of democratic ideals was that it served as a way of of not having to look at what was structurally problematic about American democracy and perhaps not just American democracy, but particularly American democracy. It, It was a way of having people closing their eyes to other things that were true about what was wrong rather than just Donald Trump. And I think that you're absolutely right when you say that any idea that Trump could have been so destructive and yet can so easily be eliminated by restoration of an old order represented by somebody who in all kinds of ways represents quite a lot of what has been structurally problematic about the American Republic. I mean, there's the idea that electing Joe Biden can be an act of democratic renewal seems to me to be somewhat somewhat odd. So in one sense, it's a chance to sort of stand back and think, okay, this was about what's wrong is about much more than Donald Trump. On the other hand, is the, the sheer nature of the intense partisanship that has come to prevail in, in the United States on, on both sides. It's very hard to see how that, that is going away you know, anytime soon. Once you've had one election essentially regarded by many people in the opposition party as illegitimate, you're going to have another one that's regarded in the same way when there were both close elections. And we can already see that in evidence. So you know, my fear is, is we're going to you know, substitute one sort of way of obfuscating the complexity of the problems that are faced for another way of doing the same thing. In my book, How Democracy Ends, I, I end it by speculating about an American election in the middle of this century to try and convey, I feel that if this is a a decline, a terminal decline, it plays out over 10, 12 electoral cycles, not one or two. And that over those one or two, there isn't a single direction of travel as with anything that's cyclical, that it's going to be up and down. There are going to be sort of temporary restorations and revivals. And the Biden presidency might within a year or two feel like something that is a kind of restoration of an order that people are more comfortable with. I agree with you. I watched his speech. There was a comfort to the just the extraordinary familiarity of his rhetoric. I mean, it just seemed to echo, I mean, a lot of it echoed, directly echoed Obama. 
no red states, no blue states, just the United States of America. It was such a politician speech, which Trump never was. So you never watched Trump and thought, oh, and this is obviously what many of his supporters liked about him. You never felt you heard a politician speaking. With Biden, I could almost not hear anything else. And even the personal bits, calling out friends and family in the audience, his tribute to his wife. He is such a politician to his fingertips. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. I'm quite keen on politics being done by politicians because they tend to be sometimes quite good at it. Um, And he might be, again, a kind of ordinary, regular, familiar kind of politician is often the one who turns out to confound expectations on the upside. But over four, five, six, eight, 10, 12 electoral cycles, this way of doing politics still so 20th century. To me, Biden is a 20th century politician. He feels like a late 20th century politician to me. It has built into it a capacity just to sort of drift while the rhetoric gets more and more heated. And I don't see much in this election that arrests the drift. That, that to me, is the, the deeper, medium, long-term anxiety that we should all have, which is I've never thought that Trump could break American politics but that um, actually because of the heat around his presidency, because of the surface noise, the underlying drift, and I think you might share this sense with Biden, the underlying drift might be even stronger. Drift towards a kind of inability to, to tackle the really big challenges. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is going to, really is going to turn on the, the geopolitical questions because in part, that's where Trump's left a really clear legacy. You know, he he's changed American policy on China so that pretty much most of the political class, as I say, what Biden thinks, I think is a bit of an outlier here, regards China now as a serious strategic rival that should be treated like one. He changed the American position on Iran, and in doing so, he really seriously changed American relations with European countries, not just the European Union, but Britain too, in deploying extraterritorial sanctions against the European countries to change their commercial relations with Iran. He pulled the US out of the Paris Climate Accord. And these are big things. And I think that you can argue that changing the first two of them is going to be not so straightforward. But I think that the, the interesting thing on the climate question, the Paris Accord, is, is obviously he can now insert by executive action the United States back into that, as he says that he will do. But if it remains the case that the Republicans do end up with control of the Senate, that that's going to be very difficult to actually produce any that different American action that so far as the United States has been able to reduce carbon emissions is essentially you know, being by replacing coal with, with gas and that anything that's more serious than that is going to require a level of broad domestic support in the United States that, that doesn't exist. And I think that that's the point, the climate question in a way is the point in which where the, the geopolitical choices that Biden will have to make and the domestic impasse that is still in place unless the Democrats win those runoff elections in, in Georgia is going to, to come together. And, and I think that it's not going to come together in a way that is going to produce, shall we say, lots of political vitality and drift might well be what we end up seeing. 
And I should say, I'm as you know, I moved like many people are by Biden's life story, and there is something about a man of his age achieving the ultimate office to which his life was pointing at various points, and then at other points he seemed very far away from it. There is something about it that has a kind of completeness about it. But he did also, he cited Obama's line about the arc of the universe, Obama's line borrowed from Martin Luther King, the arc of the universe bending towards justice. I've always found that a slightly dangerous assumption, simply because I'm not sure the arc of representative democracy bends towards justice. I think representative democracy of the kind that was so successful in the second half of the 20th century has within it a capacity actually to drift not towards injustice, but towards a kind of incapacity or indifference. And there is something about Biden's life story too that possibly fits in with that. And that, you know, this is the great dilemma that Trump posed for American democracy. He was the energy. I mean, he really was, despite all the resistance. And as you say, he was he was in some senses the person who disrupted or destabilized aspects of it. And the Biden restoration is a restoration of a kind of assumption that it will all be all right in the long run. And I'm just not sure it will be. We, we have to wait and see. And I still think there's a, in that, to use one more Obamaism, in that zig and zag of American democracy, that the Biden zag, if that's what it is, could have lots of upside to it. And he might get quite a lot done. But there is just something about that dilemma that Trump posed, which I think got lost in all of the he's going to end democracy fear that um, something is going to need to disrupt this more than Joe Biden probably will do. And if it's not going to be Trump, and I guess we'll come back to that question, who is it or what is it going to be? But maybe we should uh, park it for now. We've talked about this enough. We're going to obviously come back to talking about American politics and, and the transition, as Helen suggested when we talked about this with Gary, a few days ago, the Trump transition shows that transition politics can be just as consequential as inauguration and post-inauguration politics. So we want to talk about that too. But in our regular slot this week, we're going to be talking about something a bit different and definitely really long term. We'll be speaking with the historian Margaret Macmillan about the history, the present and the future of warfare, what it means, what the risks are and whether we take it seriously enough. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Okay, how does that sound now? It's better. I mean, it's not wonderful still, but it's better. Okay, I think. I mean, I think I'm all right. I aren't I? up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 